chapter 1, 16 through 17. As we're going to see today, this is the verse uh, that Martin Luther read and studied from his Bible and came to the realization that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so just to start out, I want to read this. So Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, which means all peoples. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. So what I want to do this morning is tell you the story a story that shines the God's light on the five solas. Uh, the five solas, this series, is about both the story and the significance. Hey, Ashley. Story, how you doing? Story and the significance of the five solas. And it's the story of Martin Luther that highlights the significance of the five solas. The story doesn't give... His story doesn't give the solas their significance. They're significant because they're biblical. But his life and his story does give historical context, and it shows how the five solas bridge the gap from biblical learning to radical living. Sound doctrine doesn't happen in a vacuum. So we can study the five solas, but the reality is they need to change our lives. So what I want to do is help you overview just a little bit of the Reformation. We did this last week. But really, if you're going to understand the Reformation, you need a definition, you need to understand the question that was being asked, and you need to understand the motivation. So just as an introduction and overview, let's kind of look at the Reformation from this standpoint. What's the definition? It's a pivotal movement that God used to bring His people back to the Bible. We talked about that last week. Back to the Bible, but in order to shine the light of the gospel in the dark ages. And we are re-entering a dark age. Would you agree with the sadness that has happened in our country in the last 48 hours? The hate, the division, the strife, the confusion, the separation... We're in a new dark age, and like never before, there's more Bibles than ever before, but there's more misunderstanding, misinterpretation of the Bible, and so we still need the Reformation. Now, I gave you a little bit there regarding different groups that came out of the Reformation, and I'm I'm not going to go over that today, but I want you to see that there's really two kinds of Reformation that took place. A Protestant Reformation, which were Roman Catholics that wanted to reform. And remember last week we saw reform means make a change for the better. But they were Roman Catholics, Martin Luther, men like Martin Luther, John Cal, most of these reformers. And they wanted to stay within the church, the Roman Catholic Church, and change it from the inside out. But ultimately, their commitment to the Bible was greater than their commitment to the teachings of the church. They wanted to be biblical. The reality, though, is they most of them fell short of the New Testament church. In other words, they reformed, but the Reformation stopped short 
of becoming a New Testament church. And so that's where the radical reformers come in. And the radical reformers were so radical that they actually sought to become a New Testament church by doing two things that most of the reformers refused to do. They began to practice believers' baptism. They rejected infant baptism and wanted to practice, as in the New Testament, the only people in the New Testament that are baptized are people that have already publicly accepted the gospel. You don't find infant baptism anywhere in the Bible. And the reality is, all the leading Protestant reformers that fell short of practicing believer's baptism actually knew that that was the New Testament practice. In fact, you can find quotes of Luther, quotes of Calvin, who admit that in the New Testament, the early practice was full immersion after one was saved. But they chose not to finish the Reformation. They fell short. And so it was left to two groups, Anabaptists, which means to baptize again, And these were people who had been sprinkled as babies. And they realized, wait a minute, that wasn't biblical. That didn't count. That didn't mean anything. And therefore, now that I profess my faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, I need to undergo believer's baptism and be fully immersed. And so these were called re-baptizers. And sadly, many of the Protestants so hated the re-baptizers, the Anabaptists, that they would persecute and kill them by literally saying, oh, you want to be baptized again? And they would tie weights to them and throw them into the water to where they would be fully immersed permanently. I've stood on the river there in Zurich, Switzerland, where the first believers during the Reformation were martyred for their faith because they practice believers' baptism. Now, up there under Protestant reformers, the big difference is not only believers' baptism, but also a free church that's not a state church. It's not a church run by the government. So if you notice, Lutherans were followers of Luther that spread from Germany. And so the state church was Germany. And here's what that means. If you were born as a baby in Germany whether you were Catholic or whether you were Lutheran, you would get infant baptized, you get sprinkled at a baby, and you were now not only a German, but you were a Christian, or soon, hopefully would become one. Same thing with Reformed and Presbyterians. Infant baptism, followers of Calvin in Switzerland, France, and Scotland. And then the Anglicans. Anglicans was the political reform that happened in England where the King Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife. And, you know, King Henry VIII, six wives, you didn't want to be married to King Henry, you know, you'd lose your head. And so King Henry wanted a divorce from his wife. The Pope wouldn't grant his divorce. And so the, uh, the king said, I'm now the leader of the Church of England. And to this day, Queen Elizabeth and soon, someday, King, uh, uh, king William... Will or Charles, I don't know, I don't think they've worked that out yet, but uh, will earn the title Defender of the Faith and Supreme Governor of the Church of England. In fact, you cannot become a priest or a minister of the Church of England even today without the Queen's approval. And you can't quit unless the Queen says you can. Very interesting. State church, state church. 
church government run by the state. But what was different with the radical reformers is they saw in the New Testament a church that was headed by only one, and who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. And you weren't run by kings, you weren't run by popes, you weren't run by a group of a presbytery, as Presbyterians would think. You weren't run by a group of bishops, as the Anglicans taught. Instead, you were a church of born-again people who professed to know Christ, were baptized after their profession of faith, and now you were a free church that was separated from the state. And so, what I'm giving you is just kind of an overview. Uh, A lot of people get distraught over how many denominations there are. You know, they say the Reformation resulted in all these denominations, and that's the problem. But the reality is, There's about 15 major Protestant denominations here in the United States. And I just gave you the the, uh, origins of like eight of them. All right. So it's not it's it's over doctrine and it's over the gospel that that we separate. And so I want you to know that as we study these reformers, it wasn't until about the 1600s in Amsterdam, of all places, that modern day Baptists have their origin and where we would trace back our roots, to the fact that these people, some came out of the Reformation, some were always separate and independent, but they continued to reform to the place to where there were New Testament Bible-believing churches. So that's the definition, and that's kind of an overview of the different groups. Let's look at the question. What was the question in the Reformation? The question was this. What must I do to be saved? And who has the authority to tell me. What must I do to be saved? And who has the authority to tell me? And that is the question that we're really going to look at today. It drove the Reformation. It drove. So if someone wants to talk to you about, oh, the Reformation was bad, there's all these denominations, you can shift the conversation to this. Do you know what the question was that drove the Reformation? It was this. What must I do to be saved? And who has the authority to tell me? And then you can turn to them and say, how would you answer that question? How would your church answer that question? And you can lead right into the gospel. Here's the motivation. The motivation was this. A monk by the name of Martin Luther, born in 1483, died in 1546, to whom God graciously revealed his answer to that question. The motivation of the Reformation came down to God used one man who wanted that question to be answered, and God in His grace used circumstances, princes, popes, all sorts of people to help Him find God's answer in the Bible. And so let's take a look at this. Here's the story behind the five solas. A monk in search of salvation at the end of the Dark Ages. So here's where we're going to pick up. Martin Luther set out, his, actually his dad set out, for him to become a lawyer. And uh, Martin's dad was a coal miner, and he wanted his son to be better. You didn't have uh, Obamacare and, and all of that, and Medicare in those days. Uh, you had, son, take care of me. 
and my mom and your mom in your old age. And so he wanted Luther to be better than himself and to provide for the family. Well, Luther encounters death as a law student. So let, let's look at it. He was born on November 10th, 1483, to peasant parents in the little town of Eisleben in Germany, about 120 miles southwest of Berlin. And here's what he said about his upbringing. He was a very common man. I'm the son of a peasant and the grandson and the great-grandson of a peasant. He was a common man. And his preaching and life always related. He always had a burden for the common man, and he was always able to communicate to the common man, even though this man was an amazing intellectual talent who, as I said last week, translated the entire New Testament from uh, the original language into German in 11 months. Okay? I can't, I can't do that. Um, actually, was it 11 months or 11 weeks? I can't remember. Anyway, whatever it was, it was, it was amazing. I always get that wrong. Uh, he was raised in a religious home that was both strict and superstitious, typical of the Middle Ages. As a child, he was influenced by what was dominating the culture at that day, the Roman Catholic Church. He had to not only... He grew up at a time in the Dark Ages, where you not had to work every day for your survival, as we've talked to Amber about her mission up to Condor in Argentina. The people have asked, well, what do these people do? And the answer Amber gives is they survive. And that's what his upbringing was. You had to work every day for your physical survivor. And then you had a church that told you you needed to work for your um, spiritual salvation. And so everything was work Work, work. Luther studied law because his dad wanted him to be a lawyer, and he earned both his bachelor's and master's degrees in the shortest time possible. He was a very, very sharp individual. But at age 19, Luther almost died. He was, uh, he, he, he was on his way home from law school, and he had a, a dagger, a, a knife in his pants to, uh, for protection, and it, 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 he fell, or it, it cut his leg, and it cut a main artery. So there he lies on the side of the road with a main artery cut, and he knows, he thinks he's going to die. His friend runs for help, and as his friend runs for help, Martin does what only Martin knows to do, what his church taught him to do. He cried out, Mary, mother of Jesus, save me. I don't want to die. Well... Thankfully, God, in His grace, not Mary, did spare his life. But this won't be the last time that Luther cries out to the saints to save him for his fear of death. But his near-death experience caused a question to begin to gnaw at Luther's life. And it's the question that we really ought to be asking people all the time. And that is this, if you were to die, do you know for sure you would go to heaven? The question that began to burden and bear down on his heart and weigh on his guilt was, what must I do to be saved? And so Luther set out to find the answer to that question, and he began to explore the answers that Roman Catholicism of the medieval church had to answer. And so a guilt-ridden monk searches for salvation. So let's see, how did it happen? Well, the first thing they ask, what must I do to be saved? And he thinks, okay, 
maybe I should become a monk. So that's the first thing, become a monk. And the idea here is this. If I'm going to become a monk, or if I'm going to be saved, maybe I need to get more spiritual. Get more spiritual. And what could be more spiritual in the medieval times that he lived than become a monk? And here's why. The church was so corrupt in his, a, in his day. The church was full of immorality and hypocrisy. The priests were horribly corrupt. Uh, and we'll see more of that here in a moment. And so if you wanted to really get away from all the worldliness, you would go and cloister yourself with a bunch of like-minded men in order to try to be more spiritual, and you'd become a monk and join a monastery. Or if you were a woman, you would become a nun. So you could separate yourself, and hopefully by getting more spiritual, you would be able to set yourself apart from God. Well, here's how that came about. In 1505, at the age of 21... He's nearly struck dead by lightning during a thunderstorm. And he promises St. Anne that he will become a monk if, he say, if she saves him from death. So he's traveling along. There's a thunderstorm. He gets struck by lightning. He's afraid you know, he's going to die. And he says, St. Anne. Now, why did he cry out to St. Anne? St. Anne was the patron saint of minors. He grew up in a minor family. Uh, coal mining family. And so he had cried out to the mother of Jesus once, and then this time he cried out to St. Anne. Well, he survived again, by God's grace, not St. Anne's. And he survived, and two weeks later, he kept his promise, and he entered one of the hardest, most strict orders of monks, the Augustinian order, and he moved to Erfurt at the age of 21. Now, his poor dad, who had set all his hopes and all his future on his son, was so disappointed. And instead of seeing the thunderstorm as an act of God, he saw it more as a trick of the devil. My son was on the right track. The devil has distracted him. Now he's becoming a poor monk. Those guys don't make any money. Parents still say things like that about going into the ministry. So... The only problem is, once you become a monk, he still didn't find the answer, what must I do to be saved? So now that I'm a monk, maybe I should become a priest and celebrate Mass. Because if you wanted to be more spiritual than a monk, then you needed to get more serious, more serious about things and become a priest. Now, why would he want to do that? Well, think about it. The Roman Catholic Church said that there were human mediators between people and Jesus. And who were those human mediators? They were priests. So if you wanted to get closer to God, what better way to do it than become one of those human mediators? Now I'm like in that group that is really, that's interesting, that's really close to God. So here's how it happens. In 1507... As a monk, he's ordained to become a priest and celebrates his first Mass. But he became so terrified at the presence of Christ. So again, priests were the only ones who could handle the bread and the wine and celebrate Mass, which the priest would pronounce certain words in Latin, 
And these words were magical, so to speak. In fact, the Latin words that the priest would repeat uh, to turn the bread, ordinary bread, into the little literal body of Christ sounded very much like hocus pocus. And that's where we get hocus pocus today. Magic words being said to turn simple bread and simple wine into the literal body and blood of Christ. But think about this. If you are a man who desires to get close to God, but you know the more you try to get close to God, you're more aware of your sins, and now you're saying words and holding bread up, and it's literally becoming the body of Christ. If you've got any awareness of your own sin, what are you going to think? You're going to think, I'm too, whole, I'm too sinful for holding something that holy. And so his hands begin to shake. His dad actually had come to see his son. He's like, okay, if you're not going to be a lawyer, at least that's pretty cool, you're a priest, I'll come and see you perform your first mass. And he was so, it was, it was embarrassing because he, he, he shook and he nearly dropped the elements. And if you do that, you just drop Jesus on the ground. Not a good thing to do, okay? Now, Luther became a priest in less than two years. This guy excelled. He, if you said go do, you know, if you said jump in order to be saved, he would say how high and then jump higher. Are you with me? Now, here's, here's what he says. I was a good monk. I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear it out. If, if I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. He was constantly scrubbing floors. He was constantly confessing sin. If, if, if he was too busy to say the required prayers, he would, he would figure up how much time he had missed, how many prayers he would miss, set a Saturday aside, and spend hours saying the prayers that he was required to say by the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, he confessed so many things. One of his confessors, one of his spiritual directors said to him, I wish you'd really go out and do something really sinful so that you could come and confess it to me. Because, listen, you're, you're fine. Stop this. But Luther wasn't fine. And he continued to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? He says, while I was a monk, I no sooner felt assailed by any temptation that I cried out, I'm lost. I'm lost. And immediately I had a recourse to a thousand methods to stifle the cries of my conscience. I went every day to confession, but that was of no use to me. Because no matter what we do, we never do enough to be as good as God. We never do enough to make up for our sins, and we can never do enough to ease our conscience before a holy God. Luther entered the monastery to find peace with God, and though driven there for rest for his soul, monastic life failed to ease his guilt. Here's what he says, Then, bowed down by sorrow, I tortured myself by the multitude of my thoughts. Look, exclaimed I, thou, you are still envious, impatient, passionate, it profits you nothing, O wretched man, to have entered this sacred order. And why is that? Because no matter where you go, who's there? You. And what's there with you? Your sin. 
is still there. And so uh, this wasn't working for Luther. And so he's still asking, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And here's his third answer. Do more penance. Do more penance. All right, penance. Roman Catholic term, which basically means be sorry for your sin and show it by doing something that shows that you're sorry. In fact, if it's something that would make you suffer, then it's even better. Okay, and so here's what his third thing. He's like, okay, look, I try to get more spiritual, so I became a monk. That didn't work. I tried to get more serious by becoming an actual priest and performing Mass. That didn't work. So now I need to be more sorry for my sin and even suffer for it. Suffer more. All right, for my sin by doing more penance. Now, get more serious, be extra sorry, and suffer more. Maybe that is what I must do to be saved. So in 1508, he begins teaching theology at the University of Wittenberg. So he moves from Erfurt, he moves to Wittenberg, Germany. But forgiveness of sins and a clear conscience were still what he was seeking. And so the spiritual struggle struggle to answer the question, what must I do to be saved, begins to weigh heavy on Luther's soul. And here's what he said. Later he said about this time in his life. If, you were to con- if, if one were to confess his sins in a timely manner, he would have to carry a confessor in his pocket. In other words, we're constantly sinning. And we can't confess enough. Plus, there's all sorts of sins we commit that we never know that we did. All right? And so, his spiritual mentor was a man by the name of Staupitz. And this guy, even though he was, you know, in Roman Catholicism, it's not like everybody that's a Roman Catholic is unsaved. This man gave him very good biblical advice. He was a spiritual mentor. He was a disciple builder to to Luther. And he gave Luther very good advice. And he says, Luther, look, you got to get your eyes off yourself and start studying the Bible. The answer is to trust God and start studying the Bible. And without knowing it, this man basically begins the Reformation by pointing Luther to the Bible. This was not bad advice, but it was rare advice to be given by those who believe you should trust Jesus and just try harder. Very unusual in that day. But Luther found no comfort in the teachings and rituals of the Roman Catholic Church. Here's two quotes by him. Yet my conscience would never give me assurance. That's what we're talking about in our series on assurance. But I was always doubting and said, you did not perform that correctly. You weren't contrite enough. You weren't sorry enough. You left that out of your confession. Do you see what happens when we try to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? And it depends on us. You're never sure of your salvation. That's why when you're sharing the hope of the gospel to someone that's in a works religion and you ask them, Are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? 99.9% of the time, they're going to say, no, 
Nobody can. Because just like Luther, when we try to work our way to salvation, we never know if we've done enough. In fact, we always know that we what? That we haven't done enough. And we wonder if it was good enough. And of course, God doesn't give assurance of salvation to those who work for it. So you'll never hear a word from God that says, boy, you done good. You did enough. Rest, relax, you're now saved. You'll never hear that from God because salvation is not by works. So, here's what he, what he decides. Oh, one more quote. I was drunk, nay, submerged in the doctrines of the Pope that I could have happily killed or cooperated with anyone who killed whoever took but a syllable of obedience away from him. So he's trying very hard to be a good Roman Catholic, and it's tearing his soul apart. And so he asks the fourth time. He's still asking, what must I do to be saved? And so he decides the answer is travel to Rome and worship more relics. Travel to Rome and worship more relics. And so in other words... Here's what he's doing. If all else fails, go see the Pope where all the really spiritual people live. In other words, go on pilgrimage. And works religion still do that. In fact, some Bible believers even think that by going to Jerusalem, one will get closer to God. Now, don't get me wrong. There's, uh, It's a blessing. There's all sorts of insights and everything. But you can't get any more saved by going to Jerusalem any more than you can to Rome. And so here's what happens. There in Wittenberg, he was under the protection of a prince by the name of Frederick the Wise. And he ruled that area that included Wittenberg. And he took pride in the university that he helped pay for, where Martin taught, and he took pride in his personal collection of relics. Now, why would he do that? Well, he had one of the largest collections of that time. He had over 19,000 holy bones. 19,000 holy bones and 5,000 other items of saints that when you combine that together, if you paid the proper money and you looked at each one of these, you could get out of, reduce your stay in purgatory, purgatory by 1.9 million years. That sounds like a pretty good deal, except when you measure 1.9 million years by eternity, and it's nothing. These treasures were made available to believers on All Saints Day, which was November 1st. So you're beginning to see why October 31st became the day for Luther to say, wait a minute, I think there's something wrong here with what we're doing. By viewing these relics and making the required contribution, paying believers could reduce their stay in purgatory and also reduce the stay of loved ones. Now... Frederick's collection was outstanding. He had bones, teeth, hairs, pieces of cloth. Ladies, he had, even had a girdle of a saint. I don't, I don't even want to think about that, but he did. That's what he had. He had in his collection a piece of straw from the manger. 
He had a scrap of swaddling clothes from Christ's manger. He had a chunk of gold brought by one of the three wise men. He had a strand from the beard of Jesus, a twig from Moses' burning bush, bread that was served at the Last Supper, and seven shreds from a veil sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Now, by the end of the Middle Ages, so many churches claimed to possess pieces of the true cross that John Calvin famously said to have remarked that there was enough wood in them to fill an entire ship. Okay? Because everybody's collecting these things. Why? They're money makers. They're money makers. And if you had the relics, you could charge the price. And let me tell you, when you're being told you've got to do all this, you've got to do all this to be saved, what better, what a deal. I mean, this is a great, relics are a great deal. I pay some money, go hungry for a few days, knock off a couple million years, and I'm doing pretty good. The problem is, it doesn't answer the question, what must I do to be saved? And so there comes a time in 1510 through 11 that Luther is sent on monk business to Rome to settle some business for the monastery. And so he gets to finally go to Rome. He gets to take a special trip to the most holy place on earth where the most spiritual people on the planet lived. And he becomes an eyewitness to the hypocrisy and corruption that was documented throughout history of what had become of the Roman Catholic Church. He sees the corruption of the church itself. He sees the luxurious lifestyles of the Pope. So here's these guys sending these priests out to collect money from the poorest of the poor. And remember, Luther came from the poor. He knows what it is to not have money. And he sees these guys living in high style, and they're taking from the poor in order to build the Vatican... St. Peter's Basilica, when these guys are living in the lap of luxury. And there's numerous relics, and there's plenty of sales of indulgences that promise the forgiveness of sins, and yet Luther is still not sure if he's saved. And he sees a lack of spiritual commitment among the priests right there in Rome. In fact, it was so bad in Rome at that time, they had brothels, for priests only. Okay? Because after all, if you're a holy guy and you're going to sin, you don't want to sin with the unholy people. You want to sin with the, the holy prostitutes. And so that's how bad it was. Now, can you imagine what this did to a guy like Luther who said, I would kill for the Pope. And then he sees that the Pope is living in the midst of hypocrisy. And so he sees that Rome is not spiritual enough to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? And so he strives one more time. And number five, what must I do? Number five, when all else fails and you need to be more spiritual, go to Bible college. Right? Okay, go to seminary. He decides to become a professor Professor of Bible. Now, I'm writing these up here because I want you to see 
that people are still going through these processes. You don't have to be a Roman Catholic to go through these processes. People are asking, what must I do to be saved? Well, maybe I need to hang around more spiritual people, and that's a good thing. But maybe I need to get more serious and become a pastor. That'll make me spiritual. Yeah, right. Maybe I need to be more sorry for my sins and deny myself some of the pleasures of life. Maybe that. Maybe I need to go uh, to a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Maybe I need to go to Bible college. Many a man and a woman has gone to Bible college simply because in their home church they showed a little spirituality and the first thing is, wow, you're committed. Why don't you go become a pastor? That's a lousy reason to become a pastor. Are you with me? The reason we go is because God's called us. We're already saved. We're already spiritual. And we're going because God's calling us, not in order to be saved or to become more spiritual. So here he says, he goes, look, I'm going to become a Bible scholar. I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to go to seminary and start studying the Bible for the rest of my life. Well, what happened, and one day in 1511, Luther and his spiritual mentor, Stoppitz, sat under a pear tree in the garden near the, the cloister at Wittenberg. And his spiritual director, Stoppitz, told the young Luther that he should become a professor of theology and a preacher. You see, this man could see in Luther a passion for people and a passion for God and a passion for the Word of God. And he said, look, you need to do this. And Luther says, it will be the death of me, to which Stoppitz said, that's quite all right. God has plenty of work for a clever men like you to do in heaven. And so he encourages him to go and become a Bible scholar. And so in 1511 to 1512, he returns to Wittenberg, receives a doctor of theology, and becomes a professor of the Bible. Now, in just over a year later, he gets his doctorate. And when you would get your doctor of theology in those days, you'd get a little woolen hat to show that you, you're a, a, a doctor of theology. You get a silver ring that people could kiss. And then you would get two Bibles, one closed and one open. So actually, finally, you got to understand, Luther had never seen a Bible until he was 20 years old. Luther had never seen a Bible until he was 20. Now he has his very own Bible. And he is sworn to be a doctor of the Holy Scriptures. And they gave him a, a, a little study in a, in, a, in, in a tower where eventually he would open the Bible that he'd been given, study the book of Romans, come to verses 16 through 17 that we read this morning, and there God, by His grace, would reveal to him his answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? It's not found in these things. It's not even sound found in being a scholar and studying the Bible. It's a letting God apply the Bible to your life. And so he took his commission seriously, and it guided his theology and his career as a reformer for the rest of his life. Here's what he said years later. What I began as a doctor, and he means a doctor, a, a, a doctor of theology, I must truly confess to the end of my life, I cannot keep silent or cease to teach. You see, the, the, the most dangerous thing the Roman Catholic Church ever did was entrust to Martin Luther a Bible of his own and tell him, study it and preach it. And this he did. And 
ultimately the reason he left the Roman Catholic Church was the Pope said, stop doing what I've commissioned you to do. And he said, I can't do that. Now, notice, in Luther's heart, at this point in his life, as he's studying the scriptures, in Luther's heart, three convictions begin to grow that laid the foundation for sola scriptura. So this idea of scripture alone is my ultimate authority. God forged in Luther's heart these things from the study of the Bible. And folks, this, this should be formed in your heart, in my heart. This is who we are as Bible believers and as Christ followers. This is what makes LifeBridge more than a name and a mission that we fulfill. So let's look at these three commitments. First of all, surrender to the Bible as the ultimate standard for truth. As he studied the Bible, God spoke to him through the Bible. Listen, folks, God can't talk to you if your Bible is closed. Open Bible, open hearts that leads to open doors where God wants you to go. Listen, as long as this book is sitting and collecting dust, as long you can have all the apps on your phone, but if those apps aren't used and if you're not you're never going to surrender your life and say, "You know what? This is God talking, and instead of me being the authority over the Bible, the Bible is the authority over me." Because this is God's word. And I don't have to know what all it says because I'm going to obey it as I learn it. In other words, I don't have to figure out what it says and then decide if I'm going to obey it. I've already surrendered my authority to the Scriptures. And that's what made Luther the man that he was. Number two, if you're going to surrender to the Bible's authority as the ultimate standard of truth, then you need to study the Bible in the original languages in order to know what it says. Now, I can't explore this more. This wasn't what the common man was to do. This is what God's men, who were going to be leaders of the church, You've got to study the Bible in the original languages so that you know what it means. We'll talk more about that. But here's what you do with that knowledge. You don't flaunt it. Instead, number three, you start teaching in the language of the common man to spread that truth. So you figure out, you study the Bible to figure out what it says, and then you share it to the common man. And that's why he translated the Bible into German. So that the common man, remember, he's born of peasants, the grandson and the great-grandson of a peasant. And I can so relate to this conviction. Because I'll never forget getting saved at this church at 17. And God laying in my heart a desire for this word. And in his grace, being led to Liberty University, now Liberty University, and ultimately Dallas Seminary. And in my heart, for those nine years that I studied, my number one passion was, God, I, those people that loved me and ministered me at Glenwood, I want to share with them the riches of your word. Not like it wasn't being taught. It was being taught. I got saved because it was being taught. But I had that passion like Luther did. I want to share with the people that poured into me. I want to share with them. And I'm still doing it. Thank you, God. And thank you, LifeBridge. But you know what? You and I, every Bible believer ought to... Listen, if you're in this book, you will have a burning desire to share it with others. 
You can't read this book and have God speak to your heart and not be burdened to share it with others. And you don't learn at all. Listen to what Luther said. He never tired of saying that only experience makes the theologian. I didn't learn my theology all at once. I haven't, you won't. But I had to search deeper for it, where my temptations took me. Not understanding, reading, or speculation, but living, nay, dying and being doomed, make a theologian. He became who he was because he knew he was a sinner headed to hell, and no one could answer the question, what must I do to be saved? And he found it where God had revealed it. Amen. In the Word of God. And so here's number six. Finally, finally, Luther finds the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is faith alone, in Christ alone, for salvation is the only biblical answer. And the only one who has authority to tell you that is God himself. And he has told you in the word of God. And so here's what happens to Luther. He begins his very first... So he's a Bible professor now. What book of the Bible is he going to start with? You know what he started with? The Psalms. Why? Because his theology was born in suffering. Psalms, and then he goes to Romans, and then he goes to Galatians, and then he teaches through Hebrews. If you want to start a Reformation, there's the books to study. And he's forever changed. And so there in the tower, he's studying Romans 1, 16 through 17, and he comes to the realization that what I must do to be saved, and you know what, God, here's the Roman Catholic, here's works religion answer, do, do. Do, do, do. And God's answer was what? Done. Done. What must I do to be saved? Nothing. Christ has done it for you. Receive it by faith. And from that time on, Luther began to see and savor and study and share the five solas of the Reformation. And there you see them in your notes. So let me end with this. How does God bring light to people in dark places? You know how he does it? The same way he did it for the dark ages. He uses those who are truly born again and who are committed to sharing God's word with all people. And that's why we are LifeBridge. To bridge the gap between Christ and those who are far from God. To bridge the gap between those who are hopeless and helpless to the one who has done it all. Amen? Isn't that cool? Isn't that great? That's why Keith and Debbie are still in Germany, because here's the deal. No generation can do this for the next generation. Here's what Luther said. I just read this last night. There's two things that every person must do alone. They must believe alone, and they must die alone. And so I beg you this morning, if you're not sure of your salvation... Don't hide in shame. Come and get help. Come and tell me. Call someone at your table and say, look, I'm not sure I'm born again. Because the answer is there. Jesus Christ is that life bridge that we're celebrating today. The most dangerous threat in all of history is a common man with a common Bible 
committed to an uncommon cause, the Great Commission. And so that is the story behind the solace. Is that good? I mean, I'm telling you what. Your spiritual doohickey ain't working if that didn't bless you. Because this guy's life. I never tire of this guy's life. And I've had the privilege to take some of you to the very places where Luther came to these discoveries. But the bigger point is to know the Jesus that saves. Amen? Okay, here's what's going to happen next week. Pray for Gwen and I as we take the favorite daughter to say, yes, hi, Amber, how you doing? Good. Yeah, she's so happy with that. Take her to college. And our dear brother in the Lord, uh, Emmanuel, is going to speak to you next week. So please be sure to be here. He's going to talk about the persecuted church, what he and his family, what the people of Nigeria, and it's not just Nigeria, it's many people around the world. So I want you to be here for that. And then when we come back, assuming that we do come back, Amber, could do we need to leave? Okay. Yeah. We're going to, I'm in trouble. I asked Amber, I, I told Gwen, I said, you know, I don't, I don't you know, I don't know how this thing works, you know, like when we leave. And then I looked on the program, and there's like this point where you're kicked off. You're just like, it's like leave. We pray for you, we weep with you, and then you leave. And so that answered that question. So I said, I told Gwen, I thought, I thought we were going to have one more chance to visit a church with Amber to check a church out. And I said, well, I guess you and I, we go in church by ourselves. So Gwen and I will check out a church. So, And then when I come back, we will finish the story of Martin Luther. Okay, good stuff. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your goodness to us. Thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for a man like Luther and how in your grace he sought to find that answer. What must I do to be saved? And you, in your grace, answered for him, nothing, nothing. It's all been done in my son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we would celebrate today and we celebrate a name, but ultimately we celebrate that name for the fame of your name, for the name of Jesus, the name above every name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.